Welcome back. We'll get started with session two. There's a few more copies coming around to be handed out, but we're going to go ahead and get started. So we talked about the process for how the Bible was copied down and got into English. And we, during dinner, Brother Will ran the exercise where we copied the letter and there were some differences in the copies of the letters, but you're able to put them all together and figure out it, it is being super simplistic, but you can just look at the majority and see, well, if the majority say it this way, it would make sense that that is the original, and we saw a mistake can happen uh, just in copying it due to any number of reasons. Well, that begs the question then, how, though, can we take evidence, how can we take confidence that we can trust the Bible we have? How do we know there wasn't too many of these errors in there to where we can't have confidence that what it says is what we're supposed to have? So that'll be the point of this session uh, among other things we're going to throw out as well. So I want to give you some lines of evidence to prove the Bible. I like acronyms. They help my mind. So I thought of an acronym for this. I want you to think of a ramp, but make it plural. So the word ramps. So if you wondered, how can I prove the Bible or talk to someone about proving the Bible, think of R-A-M-P-S, ramps. And here's what it's going to stand for. R is we have the right books. We're going to talk about that later. Do we have the right books? A, archaeology and history. There's archaeological and historical evidence that supports the claims of the Bible. In manuscripts, that's what we've been talking about. So we can look at the manuscript evidence and see the Bible's true. P for prophecy, there's just gobs of prophecies that are fulfilled. That doesn't make sense any other way they could have been fulfilled except by work of God. And S is spirit authored. And I want to hold that till the end. Now, we're not going to talk about these in order. I just, I had to put the word, I had to put the letters in order to make a word. So I come up with the word ramps. But we're going to talk about the, the M first for a little bit, the manuscripts. So how do we know that the Bible is accurate? I need to give you some definitions before we get started. Now, I am saying the word manuscript quite a bit. And let me actually define that. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of a writing. So when I'm saying we have so many numbers of manuscripts, you're going to hear me say that a few times, numbers of manuscripts, manuscripts this and manuscripts that, we are talking handwritten copies of something from the Bible. So for example, hey, we have a hundred manuscript copies of John. Well, that would mean that there are a hundred handwritten copies that we have discovered through archaeology and history that we have of John. It's not literally a hundred. I'm just throwing that out as an example. The word autograph, uh, we've mentioned it in briefing, but I didn't really define it. The autograph is the original source. So in our exercise, Brother Will had the autograph. He wrote the letter. And you guys made manuscripts, handwritten copies of the autograph. So the autograph would be when John wrote the Gospel of John, his copy. That's the autograph. And then the manuscripts are handwritten copies based off that autograph, the original. So those are some key terms to keep knowing as we go. Uh, manuscript is the handwritten copy. Now, the, another big word I'm going to throw out is variant. Brother Will mentioned it too. A variant is any differences that come up between manuscripts. So Gospel of John, again, let's keep that example you take a hundred manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, you put them all together and you study them, and if you notice, hey, John 1-2 doesn't have the word and, A-N-D. It's insignificant, but you notice that it doesn't have the word and. Well, that's technically a variant because some copies have it, but some don't. So you would mark that. There's a variant. Is it a, a meaningful variant? You don't know yet. It's just the word and. And then you go down and maybe you see um, that uh, an entire verse is missing. You know, John 1.18 just isn't in these copies, but it is in these. Well, now you need to start looking, well, wait a minute, why is a whole verse missing? But the point I want to share with you is those are variants. So it's how the manuscripts differ when you compare them together. Um, another example that has happened, I'm saying the word John. One manuscript might spell John, J-O-H-N. Another manuscript might spell John, J-O-H-A-N-N, -N, because it was a different language type spelling. Different things like that to where you look and say, this doesn't mean anything. It may not mean anything. But the, we're trying to be technical to say this would be counted as a variant. Like in the example where Brother Will said, some letters had the word C instead of ocean. 
the two are technically the same depending on the context. It doesn't really change the meaning. But it is a difference, so we would mark that as a variant and study it. So with that in mind, let's look at the manuscripts. How do we know that the Bible we have is true based on the manuscript evidence we're talking about? I want to give you another acronym for this, and I'll be done with acronyms. Um, think of the word NAV, like navigate. So NAV. It's going to stand for in the number of manuscripts, A is the age of the manuscripts, and V is the variance between the manuscripts. So what I'm about to share with you is those three things. And from those three things, we can begin to form our defense, our reasons for saying to someone, why do you believe the Bible is true and accurate? Because I know the number of manuscripts we have is quite substantial. I know that the age of those manuscripts are quite old, which is good. I'll go into that. And then their variance is statistically significant. I mean, statistically insignificant. It's so low, it doesn't even matter. So I can put the three together and say, the Bible is clearly true and accurate to what the original guys wrote. So let's start with that in mind. N stands for the number of the manuscripts. The logic is this. When historians analyze a work from history, um, maybe in school you had to read some Greek mythology, uh, Plato or Homer's Iliad, some of the classics of literature. Well, historians would find manuscripts for those works, and they count up how many they have in existence. And the theory is this. The more you have, the better. The reason is, the more you have, just like our example with the letter back there, Brother Will mentioned to me, hey, this exercise would have been awesome if we had 80 people. Well, the reason that is, is the more people you get in the mix, the more opportunity you have for some mistakes to come up here or there, but the better proof you can make with more manuscripts to show, I know what the original said. So if I only had five copies of the Gospel of John, for example, and let's say all five of those have some type of difference between each other. That's tricky to know which one of the five is the best. But if I have 500 copies of John, and let's say 50 out of 500 have a difference, well, I have 450 to go off of to help me know what John really wrote. So you want more numbers of manuscripts. The age of the manuscripts is significant, and the theory is this. From 2021, as we're discovering manuscripts and have manuscript copies of the Bible, you want older ones. Now, here's why you want that. The theory would be, if I can discover manuscript copies of, let's keep using John. So, let's say that I have manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, and one dates to the year 100 AD. But then, let's say I discover some that go to 50 AD. Well, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm getting closer and closer back to when John actually was living, when he would have wrote that. So the theory is the closer back in time you can go to date these manuscripts from when you believe they were written, the closer you can get to when that author actually lived and existed and wrote, then the theory is, well, that is probably a more accurate manuscript because less time has been allowed to drag on for mistakes to happen. I hope that makes sense. But so, so number, we want more. Age, we want to be older. Not in real life, I know, but in manuscripts. V, variance. The Bible's manuscripts, uh, we need to look at the variances between all the manuscripts and see, are they significant or not? Do they have a ton of variance or do they have very little variance? What I'm going to prove to you with the information here is that the Bible has more manuscript numbers to support its accuracy than any other literature from human history. That, that is a fact. That's not just a Christian thing we're saying. This is a fact that historians, Christian or not, recognize who look at ancient literature. No other work comes close to the Bible's number of manuscripts. Age is the same story. No other work in history can stand like the Bible can. Its manuscripts we have go further back in time, closer to when the guys actually could have lived. And variants, same story, the Bible wins on that. The Bible has fewer variants than any other work of history as well. But we're going to look at some specifics of this. Now here's an example of the Old Testament of case study. You may have heard of these. There was a discovery made 
in the 20th century called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, before the 20th century, probably the oldest copies we had of an Old Testament book was around 100 A.D. Well, now, the Old Testament was B.C. That's before Christ, right? So we didn't have any known copies that went before the life of Jesus. Not a bad thing. It's just it is what it is. But the Dead Sea Scrolls changed that. About 900 and something scrolls were discovered in these caves around Israel. And these archaeologists analyzed them and found, whoa, wait a minute, these are Hebrew scriptures. Let's start studying this. And so they, they did their thing, they put it through the test to see how old do they appear to be and all that kind of good stuff. And what they found was, um, excuse me, I said 100 AD, I was way off, it's 900 AD. Okay, so 900 AD was the oldest Hebrew text we had. So 900 years after the time of Christ, roughly. Well, here's what the Dead Sea Scrolls did. It pushed us back in time 1,000 more years. These scrolls were now the oldest discovered Hebrew copies. Now, if the Bible was not true, if it was all mixed up and messed up, then what should have happened is these older scrolls said some different things than the Old Testament we have now. But as you can guess where this is going, that is not what happened. Um, What the Dead Sea Scrolls did, the scholars took, for example, the book of Isaiah. They took the book of Isaiah that we had before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Then they took the book of Isaiah found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and they compared it. Here's the numbers. The Dead Sea Scrolls, now remember, those are the oldest ones now on record. They go back a thousand years into the past before Christ would have lived. That's what we want because it's Old Testament. We need to go older in time. Those Dead Sea Scrolls matched word for word 95% of the current Isaiah that we already had and thought was the Old Testament. You may be asking, well, now wait a minute, what the 5% is still 5%, it's supposed to be God's word, what happened here? Well, but think about this for a moment. We discovered manuscripts 1,000 years older in time than the ones we had before, and they matched 95% up. What about the 5%? The other 5% was attributed to spelling variations they stated, these scholars did, that there was no changes in doctrine, meaning, or how the stories were told. It was just, they attributed it to like dialects and language. Like, well, these people kind of spelt this different in their dialect. It was stuff like that. Again, we go back to this idea, yes, there are differences, but they're meaningless differences. And the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that the Old Testament we have had for all these years is It's the Old Testament. It's true. The Dead Sea Scrolls proved that. Well, the New Testament, what about it? Now, let me give you some numbers. I want to tell you up front, I like doing this because it'll shock you and we need to explain it. So let's look at how many manuscripts we have. First of all, autographs, the originals. Well, we have none. Okay, and that's to be expected. They can't survive that long. They they just cannot survive that long. Uh, They did not have modern day printers and stuff. So that's to be expected. What about manuscripts, handwritten copies? Okay, we have 5,800 roughly. That's an approximation. We have 5,800 handwritten Greek copies. Greek. Those would be the ones that the apostles and them wrote. We have 10,000 in Latin. Remember the Roman Catholic Church, they wanted things in Latin, so the Greek became translated into Latin. And then there's roughly 9,300 in other languages. Now, I want to take a moment to say that's pretty neat because let's say you didn't even have the Greek manuscripts. Now, you should want them, don't get me wrong, because they're older in time and they're what they actually wrote, the apostles. But even if you just had the 10,000 Latin, that is a lot of manuscripts to work with to figure out, well, what was the original New Testament? What about variants, though? How, meaning, let's take those manuscripts, put them all together. I mean, we've got thousands here, thousands. We understand there's going to be some, some variance, but, but how much? 200,000 to 400,000. Now, there's a gap of 200,000 because there's debate on are some of these real variants or a misunderstanding. I'm going to table that. That, that doesn't really matter. I, we'll take the high number. We'll, we'll, we will try to, I'm not trying to sound heretical in church, We'll try to hurt the Bible here on this and see how it comes out, okay? So we'll take the high number of 400,000. So let's say that out of thousands of manuscripts, they differ 400,000 places. That's a big number. That's a lot. 
that could make you think, well, wait a minute, how can you trust a Bible that differs 400,000 places in all of its handwritten copies and manuscripts? How can you trust it's accurate when you have copies and copies of copies and you're telling me 400,000 differences there? Well, let's look at this. There are over, like I said, 58 ancient New Testament manuscript copies just in Greek. Let's just look at the Greek, okay? Because that would be the preferred. That's what John and Peter, that's what they wrote in. So everything I'm about to tell you is just the 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Those make up approximately more than 2 million pages of text. So picture a book 2 million pages long. And that's how much material there is in these Greek manuscripts. I'm telling you that there are 400,000 variants among these 2 million pages of text. Which is word, what I remember variance is meaning a difference in spelling or a missing letter or an added word or a missing word or an added verse maybe. It's any type of change even if it seems insignificant. They're counting that as a variance. Okay? There are a lot in the New Testament, not in the Old, but that's to be expected again. But let's keep talking about the New Testament. Here's what scholars have found. 99% of those 400,000 variants do not impact the meaning of the text at all. They are trivial changes of this one had a comma, this one didn't. This one put the word at the front part of the sentence, but this one had it at the back part of the sentence. This one spelt John this way, but this one spelt it that way. It doesn't matter. It's, it's like oceans to sea. You know, it's the same thing. It just doesn't matter. The vast majority of the variants, like I've said, are word order and spelling differences. Now, that still is 1% that, are, that we need to study for a minute. They're a little bit more than just a simple word spelling change. 1% of 400,000 leaves us with 4,000. So now, out of all of our Greek handwritten copies, we have 4,000 variants that we need to study and figure out well, what's going on here. That comes out to approximately 138,000 words in the Greek, or we could say 2.9% of the words in the New Testament. So let me back up here, make sure we're all on the same page. So you have 5,800 Greek manuscripts, handwritten copies, and you're looking at them all here. And you see, you know what, we have um, 99% of this is all good. Which I would, I would say right there, that is pretty incredible. That you still have that much consistency. But let's keep going and you know, try to find holes in the Bible here. Well, let's look at the 1% that causes us a little bit of trouble. So now we said, well, okay, that comes out to 4,000 variants. But we need to put the 4,000 in context of the grand total. So the grand total of words we're looking at is 138,000 words, which is 2.9% have a change of variance. Okay, so here's some more of what that means. Scholars have determined that out of those 4,000, only roughly 50%, so now we're down to 2,000, is considered viable. Now, here's what viable means. It means that the variant goes on back in time and it needs to be examined. So, for example, um, let's say you have 100 copies of the Gospel of John. Let's say that you find a variant in there. Um, it just has a, a, let's just say it adds a verse. And you're like, well, how, half of them have the verse and half don't. But let's say that as you study this a little bit more, you find out that at, when you trace the history of when that variant first appeared in the manuscript copying process, you discover through that process it's not viable because you, you quickly see the evidence shows that variant doesn't carry on in time. So let me try to say this another way. If, if I have copies of the Gospel of John that span 100 years, so I've discovered letters for a hundred year of time span. I've got some that go back a hundred years and some that are um, closer than a hundred years, okay? So across a hundred years of time. Let's say we work our way from 2021 back 100 years and we're looking at the copies we have of the Gospel of John. Let's say 50, we, we have letters today that have a, a variance 
And as we study that variance of where we're tracing where it keeps appearing up in the copies back in time, let's say 50 years back in time, all of a sudden it stops. We don't see it before 50 years ago. What that would tell you is that variant is not real. It, it should be culled out. Because if that variant were a real change we need to look at, it would have stayed consistent throughout time and kept going back 100 years. But because you go back 50 years and all of a sudden when you go to year 51, you don't see it anymore. Well, that tells you, okay, someone goofed in year 50. And from year 50 on, it got copied. But before year 50, it's not there. I hope that's not confusing. It gets a little in the weeds. But the point is this. Out of those 4,000 variants, only half are considered viable. They need to be studied. The, well, what happened to the other half? As they kept studying it, they discovered these aren't real variants because someone goofed at some point in time. But we have manuscripts that keep going back in time that clear up the matter for us. So we're not even going to look at it. All right, so now that means out of 5,800 different New Testament, just Greek manuscripts, they all agree with each other 99% of the time. Again, I want to stress that alone should be sufficient evidence. It, it kind of is for me, but you'll have people, you know, but, but that 1%, what if that 1% changes everything? It changes all of Christian doctrine. What if in that 1%, it denies Jesus really is the Son of God, or it denies the resurrection, or now you've undone Christianity with just the 1%. But again, I, I want to stress to you, though, don't let someone say to you, well, you can't trust the Bible's true. You don't even know what they wrote. I have 5,800 Greek manuscripts that all agree with 99% of the time. It has more evidence than any other work of history. If you make our children read Plato and Homer in school and you don't question that, why are you questioning my Bible? Because the Bible has more evidence than those. So that's the idea. But let's look at the 1%. Well, this means that uh, we know we don't need the original copies because we have 5,800 copies to work from that agree 99% of the time. So what does this all mean? Well, there's uh, roughly 25,000 total manuscripts, if you count all the languages that the New Testament's been translated in. There's 25,000 manuscripts total. Um, it makes it a sure thing to know that you have the real Bible that the apostles wrote. So the scholars can easily tell the errors from the fakes because you have all these thousands of manuscripts to examine to see what variants need to be studied or not. Now, the, again, you have to remember something. I told you 400,000 variants. Like, oh my gosh, that's a high number. Of course it's a high number. And in fact, it's to be expected. And in fact, I'm surprised it's not higher. That's actually the point. Why? Because if you have almost 25,000 handwritten copies, don't you imagine there's going to be a lot of variants among 25,000 handwritten copies? Just look at what happened in our exercise. There's a room of maybe 20 of us and you had a few variants. Well, now times that 25,000 there, you're going to get a lot. So to be honest with you, 400,000 is not a big deal in the grand scheme of things is what I'm saying. So the question is, are those variants meaningful or not? So I shared with you then there's 400,000 variants among the, the Greek New Testament there. And then we drilled that down to say that only 2,000 need to be examined. And when I say need to be examined, it just means that it could be true that one says it one way or one says it another. But I want to keep stressing to you when we look at this, there is nothing on record that would say, uh, is it this way or is it that way? And let's just say we don't know. We don't know if the real letter should say it this way or that way. When I say this way or that way, I'm talking just a word. That's it. We're not talking a whole verse or a whole whatever. Um, I want to stress to you that never changes doctrine of Christianity. It, it's nothing like that at all. It would just simply be a detail in a story, a spelling of a word, stuff like that. But there's 2,000 of those that scholars have to examine because they do show up throughout the manuscripts in time, and they have to study and analyze those and see, well, which one do we think is the original or not? But let's put that in perspective. Out of 2 million pages, so a 2 million page book of all these Greek manuscripts, you have roughly 1.4 or 1.5% of meaningful word changes among 2 million pages. 
And, and remember, this was all handwritten. There was no spell check. There was no Microsoft Word. That is fantastic. That is phenomenal. Uh, that alone should mean, hey, the Bible has got it down. This is ironclad that what we hold here is what they wrote thousands of years ago. And, and we have all these manuscripts lining up and agreeing 99.5 or 99.4% of the time all with each other. That is fascinating. Let me give you an example of what they mean by a meaningful variant. Butch approached me about the King James, and, and we have that in here. So we'll talk about the King James in, in a minute as well. But I, I have an example for you. In 1 Timothy 3.16, there is one of these meaningful variants. So scholars are not entirely sure which way does it go. Well, let's look at it and see what you think. Does it matter? On the left-hand side is the English Standard Version. That's a more modern translation. On the right side is the King James Version. 1 Timothy 3.16 starts in the English Standard Version. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and on and on it goes. But look at the right-hand side. If you were to pull out a King James Bible, it would say, God was manifest in the flesh. So the ESV says the, word, the pronoun, he, was manifest in the flesh. But the King James uses the actual name, God was manifest in the flesh. So some people have, have looked at this and said, oh, oh my goodness, these, these modern day Bible translations are trying to take away the deity of Christ. Uh, they, they took out the word God and made it he. That's not the case at all. What is going on here is this is a meaningful variant, meaning there's a significant amount of those manuscripts that say he. Then there's also a significant amount that say God. Which one do you go with? Well, to be, to be fair, not 100% sure. But my challenge to you would be, it doesn't matter. I don't have to have this verse specifically say the word, God was manifest in the flesh. Because if you keep reading on the left-hand side, if we were to pull out all of 1 Timothy 3, the context is abundantly clear. He's talking about Jesus and that he came in the flesh, manifests himself in the flesh. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, but again, I am not knocking the King James. I, I think it's a good translation, but I do want to challenge you. There, there's some that kind of lean to, hey, maybe the King James is, um, you know, it, it prom though some will say it promotes the deity of Jesus better, so it's the right one. But you have to ask yourself, okay, but, but there's a reason these scholars who analyze this say, but look, we're just trying to be fair here, and we want you to know that there's sufficient evidence in the Greek to not say the word God here, because several manuscripts say he. I'll get into that more in just a moment. But what I do like about modern day translations is I have an arrow at the bottom on the left-hand side. If you go buy a, uh, like an NIV or an ESV or a CSB, if you buy a modern translation that has um, footnotes, look for one that has footnotes at the bottom of the page, and it will probably have a note like the one I'm pointing to in the arrow. It, it go home, and if you have a, a study Bible or a Bible with references, see if it has footnotes, and look up 1 Timothy 3.16, and see if it tells you something there. I put an arrow to show you what the ESV tells you. So the ESV up in the text says the word he instead of God. But then they're up front and tell you in the footnote, Greek manuscripts, some say God. So they go ahead and show you both. They put the word he up in the text because yes, they do believe that is the more accurate original in the Greek. But they go ahead and tell you in the footnote, listen though, we understand that there are some manuscripts that actually say God. So take your pick. So they show you both. So again, if you're worried about, well, which translation or just get one that, that you believe is good to read, that you are actually going to read, but get one that maybe has those footnotes. So as you're reading, you can see, hey, wait a minute, they're drawing my attention to this passage has some type of variation to it. So I might want to look at that. I'm going to keep going on through, and if there's questions about that at the end, y'all can ask me. Um, here's another example in 1 John 5, 7. The King James Version says, In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. I put the word on on the handout's a typo. So if you look up 1 John 5, 7 in the King James Version, it adds a phrase that other Bible translations do not have. It, it, it says this phrase that in heaven there's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. It's a classic verse that people like, oh look, it proves the Trinity, three in one. The problem is, 
other translations leave that phrase out. And so some people think, oh my goodness, look, they're being conspiracy here and they're trying to remove. That's not true at all. The facts of the matter are the, the more significant Greek manuscripts, they don't have that phrase. And in fact, if, if you, I don't want to get in the weeds again, but I'll mention this, we'll move on. If you were to study this specific verse out and look at Greek manuscripts, what you'll find is that phrase that the King James has the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one, it, it shows up later in time, which is not what you want. You want it to show up older in time. Not, I said that wrong. You want it to show up older, not recent. So the King James manuscripts have some differences, and most of them are not old. They don't appear in the older manuscripts, closer to when the apostles lived. They show up more recent in time. So the theory among scholars is, okay, that probably tells us they're not original. Now there's a theory, and I think it's an interesting theory for why the King James does this stuff. They believe that if you look at some of these manuscripts, I told you some of them have notes written in the margins. Sometimes people would actually write notes uh, around in the middle of the manuscript. What they think is likely to have happened because they've analyzed some of these differences in the King James Everything the King James says like this is valid. I mean, there is nothing wrong with it saying the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost is through one. That's the Trinity. I mean, amen, that is right. The question, though, becomes, but should it be here? Like, is this actually what John wrote when he wrote 1 John? We're not questioning, is this right? We're just questioning, is it authentic to John? So what the scholars believe happened is someone is sitting in church, hearing a sermon preached from 1 John, and because the next verse in 1 John talks about three witnesses of Christ on earth. And it talks about like the water and the blood and stuff like that. So the theory goes, well, it's very likely a gentleman who's a scribe is sitting in church and he's hearing the preacher talk. And the preacher mentions the verse about three witnesses uh, verifying the work of God. And the preacher says, you know, it's like the Trinity. We have Father, Son, and Spirit that testify to Jesus. There's three in one. And the guy's like, oh, that is a great point my pastor made. I'm going to write that down. Well, then the guy who gets his copy and looks at that, he might have assumed, oh, okay, that's a part of the, the Scripture. And so he keeps it in his copy of the Scripture. And so then that gets passed on throughout time, and the King James translators pick it up and say, we're just going to go ahead and keep it in here. That's fine. I'm not knocking it. I'm just trying to explain to you that is why you get some differences in, in the King James and some others. There are two significant variants that are still hotly debated to this day in the Bible um, that I will throw out at you. One of them is in John seven fifty three through chapter 8, verse 11. It is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Scholars debate that because that shows up more recent. That is not an old story that the older manuscripts have. It shows up middle of the way throughout history. So the theory again goes, well, that's kind of weird that the older copies of John don't have that in there. And it all of a sudden pops up later on down the timeline. Now, I want to, again, stress to you, I am not challenging that that story is good or that it should be there. What we're just asking is, it is debated whether or not John himself put that story in that spot in John. Because another reason I say that is, it doesn't always show up here at John 8. In some manuscripts, it shows up at the end of the book. It shows up a third of the way through the book. It just shows up in different places. It's not consistent. But does that mean that um, the Bible is false? No. The story of the woman caught in adultery is a great story, and I believe it probably happened. It's just a question of, did John mean to put it right here at John 8? Maybe, maybe not, but I want to be frank with you. It doesn't matter. That doesn't change my faith at all. The story of the woman caught in adultery doesn't really preach any real doctrine. It's just a good story about Jesus rescuing a woman from stoning and teaching a lesson to the Pharisees about not being a hypocrite. We have Mark 16 is another big one. If you get your Bible out, um, if it's a more recent one, it will have a note at Mark 16. Also, if you were to look at John 7.53 or John 8, it'll probably be in brackets, and it will have a note that says, earlier manuscripts do not contain. They're trying to tell you that, that it's possible that that story was added later. Mark 16 is another one of these examples. Mark 16 
typically stops at verse 8 in the older manuscripts. But more recent manuscripts, and the King James has picked these up too, it goes on to Mark 16, 20. So Mark 16, verse 9 to 20 is debated. Again, I stress, does that change my faith? No. And in fact, I would rather not test if some of Mark 16, 9 through 20 is real because it talks about how if you're a real Christian, you can drink poison and not die. I'm not going to test that. But that's the part that's debated is, is that originally what Mark wrote in there? We're not entirely sure, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't change my faith. But I do want to be fair and upfront and point that out to you. So why is the King James different sometimes? It is not that it's bad at all. It is just that the King James comes from a different tradition of manuscripts. So the King James has some unique differences. It actually has some extra phrases. They're not bad phrases, um, but it has some, some differences there. The reason is because, like I said, it follows a different, a different channel of manuscripts than what other translators do. Um, here's the difference of what, what's going on in Bible scholar manuscript world. You have two main camps. There's really only two. Out of those thousands and thousands of manuscripts I shared with you, you can kind of divide them up into two groups. One group has manuscripts that have a very high number. There's a lot of them. There's thousands of them. But they are not old. They're more recent. And remember I told you, you want older manuscripts in general. The older the manuscript, in theory, the closer you're getting to when the guy actually lived and wrote it. The other group of manuscripts is the opposite. They're much fewer in number. They don't have a lot of them, but they are very, very old. Some of them go back to the times when John himself would still have been living, probably. So that's very, very good. But there's a pro and con to both. One group has a high number of manuscripts, which is great. But they're more recent, they're not very old. Which means the changes they have could have showed up recently, they might not be original. The other group of manuscripts, you don't have very many, but they go way further into the past, which is cool. So which one do you go with? I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure. But I want to point that out to you, that's why the King James is different. The King James follows one group, a lot of other Bible translations follow the other group. The King James comes from a group of manuscripts where there's a ton of them. There's a lot of those manuscripts, but they are not old. They're more recent. So other scholars say, those are nice, but we don't think that means they're the best. So other translations like the ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV, why are they different? Because they come from the other manuscripts that go way farther back into time, but there's not very many of them. So to be honest with you, you just kind of take your pick. If you like the King James, read the King James, just with an understanding that that's why it's going to have some differences. Um, if you don't, you want to read something different, then just have an understanding that, hey, the King James probably says it's a little different. My argument to you would be it doesn't change anything. It, it shouldn't matter for doctrine. But that's, that's why. So what does this all mean? This means that your Bible has the most manuscripts of any work in history. Therefore, it only makes sense that it's going to have more variants. However, only 1% of these variants are viable and need examination. Out of a book that large, that is statistically insignificant. So those variants do not matter at all. The Bible has an overabundance of manuscripts for us to know with certainty. We have the original words of the authors. Let me show you this with some graphs. Let's compare the Bible to other works from ancient history. Plato was written around 400 B.C., However, we only have seven copies of the work of Plato that have survived down throughout time. The earliest one we have, meaning for our purposes, let's say the word oldest, the one that goes farther back in time. Remember, you want to go from this point forward, you want to discover manuscripts that are much, much older in time because they go closer to when the actual author lived and wrote. That that means you're probably getting closer to what he actually said. Less time has been allowed to pass for a mistake to come up in the copy. That's the idea. So I know there's a lot of information. It's on the sheet. I'm just going to throw it out at you and we're going to keep moving. But let's take Plato, for example. We only have seven copies of his work, so seven manuscripts. The oldest one we have is dated to around 800 or 900 A.D. That means historians estimate that from the time Plato lived and wrote his work, 
until we have an actual copy of it in a manuscript form, 1,200 years have passed in time. That's a big gap of time. The New Testament, by example here, is a difference. Some New Testament copies have been found between A.D. 60 and 100. Now, that date has changed a little. I tried to research a little bit more. They're discovering manuscripts quite frequently. There are now some fragments, some pieces of manuscripts that go back to almost the late 30s to 40 A.D. So we keep discovering more and keep bumping a little bit further back to when these guys actually lived. More than 57, 5,800 manuscripts survive. There are entire complete sets of the New Testament that have survived that go back to the third century. This is what that means. That means that there are entire handwritten copies of the New Testament that can be dated to be within 300 years from when the actual apostles lived and wrote. Just 300 years. You may say, oh my gosh, it's still 300 years. Okay, but put that in perspective of an example like Plato. His was 1,200 years, and he only has seven copies. Ours is 300 years, and we have 58 plus 100 copies. This is a graph of an example comparing ancient literature. The New Testament is on the left. The New Testament Greek, just the Greek, is on the very, very far left. The one next to it with the really tall blue bar, it is still the New Testament, but it's the New Testament in other languages like Latin. Now, what this graph is showing you, you want a tall bar. The taller the bar, the more manuscripts you have to support that book. Well, the New Testament has over 5,800, and if you factor in the other languages, you have over 23,000. Well, let's look at the blip in the middle that has 1,900. That's the runner-up to the Bible, and it only has 1,900. That is Homer's Iliad. And then you have Homer's Odyssey. It only has 574 you have um, Euripides, you have Caesar's Gallic Wars. Look how small these blue boxes are. My point to you is this. You may remember from school or your children may have to go through this. You at some point probably had to interact with classic literature in school. I bet your teachers never said, I'm going to assign for you to read Homer's Iliad or Plato's This or Homer's Odyssey. But oh, by the way, I want you to understand um, that it's not true. Everything about this book is false. And we don't even know that this is what Homer wrote. I bet your teachers never questioned Homer, but they'll question the Bible, right? People will question the Bible all the time, but you look at a graph like this and say, why would you do that? Why would you not question these other guys, but you're going to question my Bible? Because there's way more support for my Bible. This graph now shows the difference in time from when the author wrote to when we have copies. On this graph, you want a small bar. You want to be low to the ground. Well, once again, on the far too left there, the two on the far left you have are the smallest bars. That's great. Those are the New Testament. What that means is we have manuscripts that go closer back to when these guys actually wrote. This is a graph I like. It illustrates it. The very, very middle black dot with all the red lines pointing to it at the center. Picture that as being um, the, the center of time there that we're studying these pieces of literature. Um, that the distance from that dot to the other dots is how far in time do we have manuscripts discovered from when the author wrote. You want to be closer to the black dot in the center because that means less time has passed. The size of the yellow ball is how many numbers of manuscripts do you have to support that work. Can you guess which one is the big giant sun on the left side? It's the New Testament. So when you compare the New Testament to Homer, to Sophocles, to Aristotle, to all these ancient classical writers, the New Testament has the biggest ball, which means it has the most manuscripts to validate we know what it said. And it's closer to the center, which means it is the closest to when those guys actually would have written their, their books. The others do not compare. Um, I'm going to skip through some of these. This will be for your info. I have some charts for you that show other bar graphs about the uh, Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. So let's come back to this. Can I trust my Bible? Remember NAV, N-A-V. Well, the sheer number of manuscripts puts the Bible in a category of its own. Nothing else compares. A, the age. The earliest manuscripts of the New Testament go back to almost within 30 years of when the apostles would have lived. 
That is closer than any other book can claim from history. V for variants, out of those 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts, they all agree over 99% of the time, and that 1% or less doesn't even impact our doctrine or any belief idea from Christianity. So to me, there can be no doubt the New Testament has more evidence to support it as being true. We, we know that this is what these guys actually wrote than any other book from history. If we don't question the authenticity of other books like Homer or Aristotle, then why are we questioning the Bible? It, it doesn't make sense to me. I told you about the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was an example of uh, proving the Old Testament even more. I want to fly through this. I know I'm almost at time, but I wanted to cover this. But what about who chose the books? Like, do, Are there missing gospels out there? How do we know we have all the books we're supposed to have? Let's talk about that real quick. There is an idea, a word I want to share with you called canon, and it doesn't mean canon like a cannonball. Canon means a standard of measurement, a norm. For our terms here, I'm going to use the phrase canon of the Bible. Now what that means is, which books should be considered the authentic books that should be considered scripture? Because to be honest, there were other books competing, if you will, to, to try to get in the Bible. So how did, so did, did men just come up with, hey, I just don't like that one, so it's not going to make it in. How do we know we have the right ones? This is how critics will argue against the Bible. They'll say, well, it was men who wrote the Bible, and it was men who decided which books could be in the Bible to fit their own agenda. So therefore, the Bible is just a book from men, so you shouldn't believe that it's the Word of God. Some people will tell you, well, you know it was church councils that came together and decided what should be in the Bible. That is a very bad misrepresentation from history. That's not what happened. Look at some phrases of how I want us to think about this process. The early church did not decide what book should be in the Bible. You'll hear people tell you that. Well, now, you know, it was a church council, and, you know, when churches get together and they have a big meeting and they declare something like, we declare this or that or that. The argument goes, well, it wasn't until the 500s AD when some church council got together and they just decided, this is our Bible. It is what it is. We're, we're going with this one. That's not true at all. The church councils did not decide what books should be in the Bible. Here's how I want you to think about it. The church discovered which books should be in the Bible. They did not determine which books should be in the Bible. There's a big difference in I discover something or I determine something. So the, I don't, the church did not decide on their own, these are the books in the Bible. What I'm going to show you with this evidence is they, they uncovered, they discovered, they validated, yes, these are the books that should be in there. They didn't just choose it out of thin air. We like this one, don't like that one. Here's what actually happened with this. The, the books and letters of the Bible were either from God and authoritative or they were not. So how, how do you know? Well, God is the one that determined which books would be scripture. It was the church who discovered which of these books were scripture. Now, the church did not, here's what will happen. You'll have people say that it wasn't until four or 500 years after the times of the apostles that you didn't have, like if you look at the table of contents in your Bible, they'll tell you well, it wasn't almost until 500 years after the times of the New Testament era when you have a list of the books of the Bible. Well, what happened in the first four to 500 years? Why couldn't the church get their act together? There's a few things from history that, that were going on. Um, why wasn't there a book earlier? You have to remember something about the Roman Empire. Remember, they ruled the day during the New Testament time. Christianity began to come around in the book of Acts. You know the story. Thousands are saved here. Thousands are saved there. So the, the New Testament church is forming and growing and growing. But then you have people like Paul. They don't like that. So before, before Saul became Paul, he's a persecutor of the church, throwing him in jail and stuff like that. Well, as time moved on, though... Uh, a new Roman emperor arose, and he didn't like Christians. So he made Christianity illegal. He would throw them in jail. He would kill them. He took some of their manuscripts, which is why scholars believe we don't have more than what we have that go older. There was m stories from history of mass burnings of Christian books from these Roman emperors. So that's why we probably don't go older than what we do sometimes. They were trying to get rid of Christianity, which means they could not get together as one big body and figure stuff out, like which books do we think really are in the Bible or not? Because it wasn't until way later on, I think I have the date here, 
It wasn't until the year 313 AD when you had a guy named Constantine became a Christian. Well, it just so happened Constantine also became the emperor of Rome. So he decided, you know what, let's make Christianity legal. Now it's no longer bad to be a Christian. You can publicly be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Well, in fact, 10 years after that, Christianity actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So it went from being hunted down and tried to be exterminated to it's the official state religion of the Roman Empire. That is why during that time period you start to see a lot of church writings. And you'll have people try to tell you, well, look, how come your records don't go back before the 300s? Why don't you have more books from the apostles when they were written? Because it was illegal, they were being hunted down and killed, and they were burning their books. So, of course, it makes sense I don't have stuff until about the 300s or 400s. Now, what this has to do with the books of the Bible is it was during this time period when Christianity became legal, the church got together and said, we know these are the books of the Bible, and they actually made a list. Well, how did they um, discover here? How did they figure out, well, which books are or which are not? My argument is they already knew which books should be in the Bible. What they were actually doing is they came together, once Christianity became legal, they came together to declare which books should be considered false. So it's the opposite of what critics will tell you. Don't let people make you think, oh, well, it was men that decided the Bible. No, it was men who come together and said, we know this is the Bible. We've known it for 300 years, but we're trying to tell you on paper that these are not the Bible. They're bad off. They're wrong. So the church knew what books were to be in the scripture before this official list came about. Um, Let me skip through some of this. So here's some tests that they put these, uh, these books through. They would say, you know what, um, who's the author of this book? It needs to be from an apostle, because they're the only ones Jesus authorized to teach his truth. You may say, well, what about Luke? Well, the exception they made was it had to be an apostle or an authorized messenger of an apostle. So do you know why Luke made it in? Well, Luke did because he was Paul's personal associate. So everybody knew throughout the lands there that, hey, Paul has commissioned Luke to write this. Paul's commissioned Luke to record these events. And then if you read in Luke and Acts, he talks about he wrote those as history um, research for another man who had questions about Christ. So they, they basically said, if you're giving us a letter and you're trying to tell us it's from God, but it's from someone we've never even heard of, we're not even accepting that. The next thing they did is they looked at, has this letter been widely used by the church And it's sort of self-evident that God is speaking through this letter. Then they ask themselves, is the letter accurate? So let's take the Gospel of Thomas as an example. That's a real one that was out there. And the Gospel of Thomas, they said, let's look at the Gospel of Thomas. It says Thomas. He was an apostle. Okay, we can check that box. But not a lot of people had heard of it. They started asking the churches, hey, do y'all have this copy of the Gospel of Thomas? They're like, no, I've never heard of it. And then, well, okay, let's look at it. We'll hold on to it for a minute. Well, then they they keep looking at it, and they start reading it, and they see, whoa, wait a minute. This has some doctrine in it that outright contradicts Paul and Peter and James. Something's not right here. Thomas is not going to argue against the other apostles, is the idea. So then another thing they would look at in the Gospel of Thomas, for example, um, when they dated when that was written, it was shown to have been written after Thomas was already dead and gone. So that kind of closed the case on that because how could Thomas have actually written that if he was already dead and gone? So that's kind of the stuff that they looked at to see. Um, Now then, the Old Testament, you may say, well, how do we know that we have the right books in the Old Testament? That one's actually easy to prove, and here's how. Um, I'm going to talk real fast, sorry. Uh, In the Old Testament, Jesus never questioned his Hebrew Bible. I want to point that out. That is very, very significant. Because by the time Jesus came on the scene, almost 100 years before Jesus was even born, the Hebrews already had an accepted, agreed-upon Old Testament. And it's the same one we have today, Genesis to Malachi. Now, they had different order. If you look at a Hebrew Bible, it's it's in different order. They did it by category, um, sort of. But... It's the same books. It is all of those same books. There's no extra books. There's no lesser books. It's the same. So then Jesus comes on the scene, and you actually see Jesus 
affirming the Old Testament more than once. Remember phrases like, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. Well, that would have been a great time for Jesus to say, which, oh, by the way, portions of the law are not correct, so I'm not going to fulfill those. He didn't say that. He said all of the law by his day, which was the Old Testament, and he said, I'm here to fulfill that stuff. So if Jesus had a problem with the Old Testament, why didn't he bring it up? He didn't. I have some verses there where you can see for yourself that Jesus affirmed the Old Testament of his day. Now, my point is this. If Jesus affirmed the same Old Testament for his day, which is the same one we have today, I accept that. I don't need any more debate or discussion because if Jesus thought the Old Testament wasn't valid, he would have said something about that. But instead, he affirmed it over and over. Um, The New Testament, Jesus told the apostles that they would write the rest of Scripture. We talked about that. Then you see that the church examined these letters to see, does it appear that they really are from God because they have all this evidence from being from an apostle and stuff like that. I want to throw out another point to you that's interesting, and we won't take time to read it, so I gave you the scriptures. But if if you look at 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes from Luke. He quotes from Luke 10.7 and calls it scripture. So Paul validated with his own scriptural letter that Luke was a writer of scripture. And then you also have Peter doing the same thing for Paul. If you look at 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, you will see that Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. So that's the idea is you look at these letters and you see these guys are supporting each other. You have Paul saying to us, Luke is a writer of scripture. You have Peter saying Paul is, and so on and so forth. Um, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this. I wish I did, but I threw in your notes uh, because I wondered this a while back. What about Catholic Bibles? If you ever have a, know a Catholic, look, say, hey, can I see your Catholic Bible? It's going to have extra books. They have extra books called the Apocrypha. Um, and the Catholic books, I'm honestly not sure why they accept all those, but I can tell you why I, we don't accept those as being non-Catholics. Here's why. The books that they have are supposed to be Old Testament books that are extra. Now, we don't accept them. Why? Because those books were never accepted by the Jews themselves who were around during the Old Testament times. Jesus never affirmed those books. Remember, I told you the Bible Jesus had, it doesn't have those books I'm telling you about that the Catholics have. I'm not dogging Catholics. I'm just telling you the the evidence here that I'm going off of. So those books were not in Jesus' Hebrew Bible. Jesus never mentioned them. He never said, hey, guys, we're missing some books here. He affirmed the, the Bible that they had. Um, the earliest list that we do have of the church that made a list of books, they never list those extra books that are in the Catholic Bible. And it wasn't until the year 1546, that's, that's kind of a long ways past the Bible times. It wasn't until that year when the Catholic Church come together and said, we want these books to be considered scripture. So with all of that put together, um, and if you read them, they're honestly, they, they don't read like the rest of Scripture and stuff. So with all of that put together, it makes me say, look, those aren't, we're not supposed to be in the Bible. I'm, I'm, you could ask a Catholic, I'm not knocking them. You could maybe just ask them why they accept those. They, I'm sure they have their reasons, but Jesus didn't have them. The Jews themselves didn't have them. So it doesn't make sense for us to have them if they didn't accept them either. Um, I want to mention a few things and we'll move on to close this out. I told you think of ramps, so the right books, we talked about that. And then I said A for archaeology. Um, there, I have on your sheet there, there is just gobs and gobs of archaeological stuff that has been discovered that validates something from Scripture. Um, I gave you a couple examples where you can see they have found in ancient writings talks of a great flood from other kingdoms and stuff. So the point is this, there's been no discoveries from archaeology and history that take away from the Bible being true. If anything, it supports it. Then we can look at um, P. So in our word ramps, we have the right books, archaeology, the manuscripts, P for prophecy. There's at least over 100 prophecies that just Jesus himself fulfilled. And some of them are very, very detailed. And some of those prophecies were made 1,200 years before Jesus was even born. So the logic would be, how could this book just be another human book? If you have prophecies being made and 1,200 years later by different authors who didn't know each other, they couldn't collude and conspire. They were dead and gone by the time the other guy comes along to write. But the prophecies are fulfilled to the letter in Christ. I want to end on S for spirit authored. Now, a lot of people won't be convinced by this line of reasoning, but I want to share it with us because I think it's significant. 
I think a final proof to mention is that the Bible, when you read it, it seems to be just, it's a different book, if you're honest. It is not just any other book written by a human person. It's the Hebrews 4.12 idea. It is living and active. It convicts us. It moves on us. My argument is, you know, you can use that to say, listen, when I read the scriptures, it, it is working on me. It is changing me. It is God speaking to me through those books. So I pray that this has maybe given you more confidence that the Bible we have really is true. There's no reason to doubt it at all. So with that, I'll close it out.